Would you please uh, bow your heads with me for a word of prayer? Well, good morning, Lord. Thank you for the gospel reading today, and thank you for your servant, Abram. Lord, I ask that you'd help me now as I preach. I pray for each one of us, Lord, that you would increase our faith, that you would remind us of your goodness, and that you would help us follow you. I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. You may be seated. One of my um, favorite scholars of Old Testament theology is a man named Tremper Longman. I have several of his books and commentaries. And regarding this chapter, Genesis chapter 15, he reminds himself of when he first became a Christian. He's probably somewhere around my parents' age and was in college in the early 1970s, which if you were alive then or know about these things, is when the Jesus movement happened. The gospel of Jesus was going <clears throat> like wildfire through college campuses, and people were coming to faith in large numbers in those days. And Tremper Longman says that there was a saying that was part of the proclamation of the gospel, that God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. And with that kind of a phrase, people were encouraged to trust in Jesus. Now, the problem with that was <clears throat> it implied that if you give your life to Jesus, he's going to solve all your problems, and you will have this wonderful life, and things will get better for you in the short term. And, of course, there was pretty massive disillusionment with that. People didn't experience what they thought should happen. Oh, great, I pray, I admit I'm a sinner, I confess my my faith in Jesus, and now I've got the God of the universe trying to help me do what I want to do. And that's a little bit backwards. Or maybe some of you, I've, I've pointed this out before, maybe some of you have that verse from Jeremiah 29, 11, for, where God says, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you a hope and a future. And that sounds awesome, except that it's yanked out of context and it misses the whole fact that God had just sent them into exile for 70 years to punish them and to help them with a sin problem before he brings them out and relates this incredible, wonderful plan for their lives. So I wonder about you, if you're a Christian, when you first started following Jesus, did you even know there was such a thing as a dark night of the soul? That's what one of the, the uh, earlier heroes of the faith, St. John of the Cross wrote a book called The Dark Night of the Soul, where he started to recognize it was a common experience for people. When they become Christians, at first they experience all this really great stuff. They feel God's presence. He answers prayers oftentimes very immediately, and everything is great. And then all of a sudden it seems like he's gone. It's like he's gone dark. The dark night of the soul is actually a tool that the Lord uses to strengthen faith, to test faith, and to to uh, mature a new believer. It's very common. And if you don't know that's coming, you might be disillusioned. You might start to doubt. You might start to question, is God even good? Where did he go? He's forsaken me. I remember early in ministry, there was, um, there was a simple way to help somebody who wanted to follow Jesus, and it was the ABCs of becoming a Christian. You admit that you're a sinner, you believe that Jesus died for your sins to reconcile you to God, and then you commit yourself to follow him. And the problem is that it was missing something really important. So I modified it to be the ABCD, and I said, you admit you're a sinner, you believe that Jesus died for your sins, C, you count the cost of discipleship, and D, then you decide to follow him. And that means you need to weigh, like, if I give him my life, if I decide to follow him, what am I going to have to give up? 
And at first you start calculating bits and pieces of your life, and then very quickly you realize, oh, wait a minute, this is a 100% decision. I've got to be willing to give him everything. And now I've got to decide, is it worth it? And then when you decide that where else would you turn, he has the words of eternal life, you go, all right, I'm all in, God. I don't know what it's going to cost. I give you everything. And I decide to follow you. See, it's that counting the cost part that people miss. And so when it gets difficult, not if, they start to question God's goodness. Many fall away. They struggle because they didn't know it was coming. Abram is in serious doubt at the beginning of chapter 15 of Genesis. And he's about to learn something that we all have to learn. Life is hard, but God is good. And so let's take a look at this. Why is life so hard for Abram? Well, the very first verse of chapter 15 says this. After these things, okay, right there, if you're going to be faithful to this book, you have to back up and look at the context. What are these things? After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram. Fear not. Why, why is he afraid? Well, when you look what these things were, he had just gone to war with tribal kings that had banded together to attack part of the land of promise. And in so doing, they scooped up Lot, his nephew, and all of his property and all his people, and they captured him and took him away. Word came to Abram, and he mustered a small army, which, by the way, shows how much he's prospered. He's now got enough to have, it says, 318 men born of his household. So of his servants and of the people he's acquired, he now has 318 men who've been trained in war. They get together, and they go after those kings, and they attack them, a bloody attack. And the details are not really in here, but he wins, and he gets Lot, and he gets all his stuff and brings them back. But why is he afraid? Well, there's probably retaliation coming. Remember, God promised to give him a land, and it turns out that it's full of small kings and tribal lords that are warring with one another. He's in the midst of a fairly hostile place, and he's just committed bloodshed to rescue his nephew. This is not a good scenario. On top of that, he still doesn't have a child. God said, I will give you numerous offspring, and his wife still hasn't had a baby. They don't have a child, and there's this land that's occupied, and now he's at risk of um, some kind of retaliation from these other kings. You know, when he leaves Haran, up last week we looked at, he was up in like Turkey and modern, the border with modern-day Syria, and goes, when he leaves there and goes down into the promised land, it says he's 75 years old. Do you know how old he is when Isaac is actually born in chapter 21? We haven't gotten there yet. He's 100. He's 100. Not only is he way too old to be having a baby, but he's had to wait 25 years for that promise to come true. And I wonder about you and I. How long are we willing to wait on the Lord before we get frustrated and start complaining and despair? I'm going to commission Curtis later. That's Curtis over there. Um, he and his family are here. I'm going to commission him at the end of the service. Curtis is essentially stepping into what was the role that Dan Wolf had to vacate to plant the church up in Portland, Maine. And I said, okay, great, Lord, you're calling Dan to go do this work. Who are you going to send to fill in that full-time position on our staff? Well, Curtis is here now, but, like, that's not that long. I mean, it's been a year or so, but I'm like, God, I've been praying for, like, 10 months. Where are you? 25 years Abram has to wait to get this child. And I wonder, what's our, what's our duration? The early church thought that Jesus was going to return in their lifetime. And so within a decade or two, when he hadn't come back and they were suffering persecution, 
they started to despair and be frustrated. So Paul writes about this in his, in his letter to the, the Thessalonians. He tells them to wait. He, he's, he's, he, probably Paul as well, is starting to expand the potential that this might not happen in the next couple of years. This might be a lot longer. In fact, Peter says, a day is like a thousand years to the Lord. He's not slow, but he's being patient. In other words, you're going to have to wait on the Lord, just like the Psalms say, wait. How long, Lord? I have to wait. I have to wait. Now, God does a good thing. Abram is in, in fear, and God comes and encourages him, and he says, I'm your shield, and your reward will be very great. And then he says, but God, Eliezer of Damascus, one of my servants, is going to be my inheritor because I don't have a son. And God says right away, no, he will not. Eliezer will not inherit this stuff. And then he gives him an encouraging word. He says, go outside and look at the stars. Number them if you can. Your descendants will be as numerous as the stars. What a great encouragement. He gives him a word that will encourage him. And the scriptures say that in verse 6, Abram believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. That's a text that the Apostle Paul will pick up on in Romans and in Galatians to make the point that you don't save yourself. You are saved by God's grace. He's the one who saves you. We have to trust his promises, but it's the promises that save. And, it, and when he says, you won't be able to number your offspring, Abram goes, in his heart, he, he trusts what God says. He believes, and God then counts them as righteous. He's got lots of doubts, though, and questions. Not only, see, he's questioning, at first he's questioning God's word. You said something and it hasn't happened, and now I've got all this conflict in my life. Did I misunderstand, or are you not trustworthy? And then God reiterates the promise, and then he, he seems to question himself. And he says, the Lord says, I'm the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. But Abram says, O Lord God, how am I to know that I will possess it? In other words, I'm questioning your word, and you've reassured me, but how do I know that I'm going to be able to do this? I'm not sure I'm trustworthy either. And he's in this kind of scenario here. Now, he doubts. And I want to I pause for a minute and say there is a big difference between doubt and disbelief. Doubt is not the opposite of faith. Disbelief is the opposite of faith. Doubting is normal and natural. Doubting asks questions. Like John the Baptist, when he's thrown in prison, he sends his disciples to go and ask Jesus, are you the Messiah? I thought you were the Messiah, but I'm wondering now, because I'm still in jail, and you haven't wiped out the Romans, and what's going on? He, he wasn't despairing yet. He wasn't disbelieving. He was doubting, though. He was questioning, and then Jesus gave him an answer from Isaiah 61. Go and tell John the Baptist, look at what, what you see happening. The, the blind are receiving sight. People are being set free. They're hearing good news. And, and he just has to recalibrate God's plan. He does have a wonderful plan for your life. John, it's just going to involve a hard time before you see the true goodness of God. Now, with disbelief, it's not about asking questions. Disbelief comes to conclusions. Are we not right in saying, Jesus, that you're a Samaritan and you have a, a demon? No, I don't have a demon. Aha, you do have a demon, see? And they've come to conclusions, and they accuse him. They've, they're not doubting. They're in full-on disbelief. That's very different than doubt. I really, I don't know if you're watching the Chosen um, series at all, the TV series where they're um, putting flesh, if you will, on the gospel, and they're 
they're uh, doing a modern version of the story of Jesus. They take a lot of artistic license, but I think it's actually helpful as long as you read the Bible as well to see what's added and what's in the scriptures. The story of Nathaniel is an interesting one. He's sitting under a tree, and he's in there. He wants to be an architect, and he's very frustrated because he's failing at it. And he had these grand designs to help God by building these beautiful synagogues, and, they're, and he's failing. And he cries out, and he goes, God, do you even see me? And there's just silence from heaven. And then a little bit later, he hears from one of the other disciples that, come see this guy. We think we found the Messiah. Where is he from? Nazareth. Can anything good come out of there? And then as soon as he meets Jesus, Jesus says to him, I saw you while you were sitting under the fig tree. And when we read it in black and white, it doesn't have the same punch as when you, you see a person under the fig tree questioning, doubting, struggling. And it's like immediately Jesus knew what his heart question was and encouraged him. It's very powerful. Abraham knows, or Abram knows that he's too old to have a child, but he believes that God can do it anyway. There's something a little different in the New Testament when John the Baptist's father hears from the angel that he and his wife are going to have a child in their old age. He doesn't just doubt, he disbelieves. I'm too old to have a baby. And he gets struck mute for nine months by the angel. Now it's a thin line between what is doubt and what is disbelief, but we see examples of both. And what we learn here is that Abram has doubts, but he doesn't move into disbelief. He has doubts, but he's seeking understanding, and he's asking God for more to help him understand. Now, he's credited for right, with righteousness because he actually believes the word of God, but he keeps going to God for reassurances and more words and more encouragement, and he gets one that is so incredibly powerful, and it points us to the cross, actually. I, I heard an expression this week I'd not heard before that... Um, the uh, early church theologian St. Augustine said that the Old Testament is a fully furnished room that has poor lighting. And it's the New Testament that opens the blinds and you can see all the furniture. When we see what happens here with this self-cursing oath, it is pointing to the cross and how Jesus dies for our sins. But let me back up and explain that to you. This, this idea of assuring Abram by, by entering into a covenant using a custom of those days of cutting an animal in half, multiple animals. So he said, go get, a, go get a heifer that's three years old, go get all these different animals, kill them, cut them in half, and lay their body parts on either half and make an aisle down the middle. Now this was a way that in, in, in those olden days, that's how they enacted a serious covenant. The two parties would then walk between these dead animals, effectively saying, May it be so to me if I renege on my word. May I be like these dead animals cut in pieces if I don't do what I'm promising right now. And in some situations when it was an unequal authority, like a king conquered another king, the king that was in charge didn't walk through. He just made the vassal king walk through and say, I pledge to serve you as our, our over king here, and may it be so to me if I, if I rebel. <clears throat> so the, the more powerful one didn't walk through. So what happens here is very interesting, though, because um, Abraham arranges all these animals, and, um, and then right away it tells us in here that birds of prey, unclean birds, come down, and he has to drive them away. Now, this isn't just some random detail thrown in here because the authors of Scripture didn't do that. This is in here probably, I'm guessing here, probably as a foreshadowing that life is hard. God is good, but life is hard. There are going to be difficulties and conflicts. And then a huge dread comes upon him, like a darkness, like a, like a nightmarish 
trance that he's in, and he just feels brooding darkness. And then God says, you need to know that your offspring are going to be slaves for 400 years in Egypt, but then I'm going to bring them out into this land. And what's so interesting is, <clears throat> while this is happening, um, Abram is, doesn't go between the animals. You think, well, God's the powerful one, and here's, he's making a covenant with this less powerful person, and, and yet Abram doesn't walk between the animals. He never even fulfills his side of the deal. God enters into this promise, and he takes both parties' roles. He says, I'm good on my word, and I promise to uphold everything I say. In fact, I will uphold your end of the deal, too. If you're not faithful in upholding what you're supposed to do, may I be as these animals. And I have to imagine that when God did this, all of the heavenly hosts, the angels went, what? You did what? The God of the universe just said, I will become like a dead animal. What? You entered into a covenant with Abram, that sinner? How is it possible for God to even die? You don't even have a physical body. Well, I, we're so confused. I imagine all of heaven was in the room that was fully furnished, but the light wasn't on it yet. They needed the New Testament. They needed the incarnation to understand this. And yet, that's exactly what happens. Abram and his descendants, they're they are blessed truly by God. And the Old Testament shows one after another stumbling and not being able to uphold their end of the deal. And God being so good and so gracious and life being so hard for them until finally he comes. He comes and takes our sin and dies and literally physically dies on the cross. And it's foreshadowed here in this, in this little ceremony that they do. This is the gospel according to Abram right here in Genesis chapter 15. And it's good news that God comes down to us. My daughter's a freshman in college. My younger daughter, she just started um, at USF. And one of her classes, an elective, is comparative religions. And I went like this. Now, let me tell you something. <laughs> I don't know what they're going to tell you, but my guess is they're going to try and lay all the religions out and show how they're similar. And you find one of them where God comes down from heaven and dies for the people. You find one that's even close to that, and I'll be impressed, because there are none. All the religions are similar of humans trying to be good enough and aspiring to appease the God of their choice. This one shows people who can't do that and a God who out of love comes down. And not only comes down, comes down all the way to die in our place so that then we can live. That great exchange that Paul talks about. God made him who had no sin to become sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Do you believe the promise of God that Jesus paid for your sins, that in him you are forgiven and reconciled to God? Amen. If you, if you struggle with doubt, understand that's normal. Life is hard, but God is good. This is good news, and that's okay. That's okay to have doubt. That's normal, because life is difficult. But the good news is that God's promises are trustworthy, and that he said things to Abram, and then he actually fulfilled them on the cross. And thank, thankfully, I thank God that we're on this side of the cross, that we have the light that shows all of this for us. Now, to some of you, you might have never actually done the ABCD thing. Like, you, you, you kind of toyed around with it. I want to invite you to count the cost. I want you to think about what is on offer here. If you will relent of your own personal lordship and come under Jesus' lordship, 
admit you're a sinner, believe he died for your sins and receive that gift, count the cost. It means you're, you're no longer your, your own. You're bought with a price. And then decide to follow him. You will find how good God is. And that doesn't mean your life will get easier. There are some times that people do that and they think right away they're going to be healed of something. You know, if you're a, an angry or an addicted person, oftentimes you become an angry and addicted Christian. It takes time. He starts working on you. Now, sometimes he does the miraculous and sets you free immediately, but not always. Remember that life is hard, but God is good. And I want to invite you to, to, to pray and decide to follow him and ask him to come into your life. Now, if you're someone who is a Christian and you still struggle with doubt, don't go on to becoming disbelieving. Like Jesus said to Thomas, stop becoming disbelieving and become believing. It's okay to doubt. It's not okay to disbelieve and to come to the conclusion like the people in the gospel reading did. See, Jesus, you are full of demons. No, you're just in disbelief. And Jesus had hard words for them. But he was gentle with people like Nicodemus, a Pharisee that actually came with real doubts, but he wasn't coming in disbelief. And Jesus helped him along, and he moved to a place of faith. So let me tell you one of the things that really helps, and I, I did this as our call to worship today, remembering. Remembering what God has done both universally what he has done, remembering the cross, but also remembering what he's done in your life. Go back to that place where you first became a Christian and you saw him move in certain ways. Remember those times when he did speak powerfully. Remember those times when you had to wait on him and then he showed up. And this, of course, we're going to have the Lord's Supper as we do every Sunday. This is entirely about remembrance. It's about reminding ourselves and rehearsing of the goodness of God despite the difficulties of life and that helps us with our doubt. We'll come to the Lord's table today and be encouraged. This is really good news. Life is hard, but our God is so good. Would you pray with me? Lord, again, I thank you for the example of your servant, Abram. And I pray that you would help us move onto a place of deeper faith today as we continue to worship you. We're just going to pause, Lord, in a moment of silence. And we want to hear from you, but we also want to be honest about our concerns, our hesitations. Lord, what do you have to say to us? Speak, Lord, for your servants are listening. And I invite you to just be still for about 30 seconds. Lord, as we continue in worship this morning, we ask for you to help us. And we pray all this in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. I want to invite you to 